0: In this episode of Suspect Zero, the unsolved case of the Jennings Eight, due to some graphic content, listener discretion is advised.
1: From the Bayou's brackish waters to the home of some of America's most diverse culture, including a Creole and Cajun population, Louisiana is influenced by the Spanish, French, African, and Native American language, music, and of course food. With many vibrant festivals and celebrations, the nightlife leaves nothing to be desired, as people celebrate their culture and know how to have a good time. One would think that life in Louisiana would be extremely desirable. However, everything comes with a price. In 2018, Louisiana was ranked as the least healthy state in the country, with many drug-related deaths, excessive alcohol consumption, and the highest homicide rate in the U.S. since 1990. With a population of approximately 11,000 people, the city of Jennings, Louisiana lies between the larger cities of Lafayette and Lake Charles. Jennings is the seat of Jefferson Davis Parish, which was founded as a railroad depot. The city itself has its own idea of what family is and how they foster relationships with each other. They seem to be a tight-knit group of people who take pride in knowing each other and considering most people their family. So it's quite shocking that between 2005 and 2009, the bodies of eight women were found in swamps and canals surrounding Jennings. Most of the bodies were found in such a state of decomposition as to make the actual cause of death difficult to determine. Author and investigative reporter Ethan Brown gained interest in the case as he was reporting on the Rotary Club's activities. He was plagued by a billboard with the missing girl's faces and a case that had no answers. His curiosity started his digging and looking for some type of closure. In doing so, his findings have revealed how police investigations have been affected by missing evidence and cover-ups. Brown's work has revealed that there are multiple suspects in the case and that it is unlikely that this is the work of a serial killer. Brown has revealed that law enforcement's own witnesses have named members of local law enforcement as suspects in the case. Welcome to Suspect Zero, where we not only discuss unsolved cold cases, but serial killers whose crimes are lesser known or virtually unknown. I'm Dawn Washburn, and joining me is my co-host, Dr. Michael Arntfield. Hello, Michael. Hi, Dawn. How's it going? It's going well.
0: Interesting case this week. Again, we get lots of suggestions from listeners and viewers who stumble across cases that, you know, they think should be spotlighted a little bit more, and certainly we have our, our short list of our own, as do my students, as that's one of their tasks in my cold case group. So this is a case that, you know, a few people have become aware of but I don't think and again this is the whole basis for this show really has any household name recognition whatsoever even though uh, again it has all the elements that you think would be make it right for again a major major documentary
1: there was a documentary out that um it's called Murder on the Bayou uh, and I watched it you know to research for the case a little bit it was absolutely amazing And not only was it amazing, but you really get the feel of what goes on in Jennings, Louisiana. Minus the drugs and the poverty that's going on there, this is a very family-oriented place. The people, I mean, they have it right in the sense of, we say it takes a village. You know, everybody's helping raise other people's kids and they're running around playing and the kids grow up in, in, in a great family environment. And Insert drugs and, and the poverty. I mean, they could almost get around the poverty, but the drugs are what is, is, is causing a lot of the downfall and demise of what's going on there. You know, and, and you see these people and they're just they're so unbelievably driven to find out what happened to these eight women who, by the way, these eight women were connected to each other. They all knew each other you know, in one form or another, clearly through where they live, but also through the drugs, unfortunately, and the prostitution to in order to get the drugs. So that's the sad part and unfortunate part about the case. But when you really delve into who these women are, and I think that's really important because these victims were, were people, despite what you know, that they were doing on the side. And, and we said this also in the, in the Millennium Strangler case, you know, lives are important no matter whose life they are. And they belong to someone, they belong to someone's family. And these families really need justice. They need to figure out what's going on. And they're not getting answers because they believe there's a cover up. You know, I don't know if there is one or not, but they feel that there is, and they don't feel they're getting anywhere with the police and the investigation thus far.
0: Well, and that's a common narrative in a lot of cold cases, but the, I mean, the key issue here is you've got this small town, you've got nine uh, suspicious deaths. uh, Well, they've been classified as homicides. So we can call them eight for sure homicides, two of which, again, uh, you you already mentioned that the the decomp was so advanced in in most of the cases, that cause of death couldn't be determined, but they are classified as homicides. Two of which though, um, were confirmed by the medical examiner cause of death was the throats being cut. So, I mean, that's pretty conclusive. Uh, Do we know that the other six uh, had the same MO? No, we don't. But it's interesting, depending who you talk to, the thought of or the theory that this is a serial killer or not a serial killer. I mean, let's look now at the common characteristics of these crimes. We've got eight women at least Mm -hmm. from a certain sector of the community, who have certain interconnections, again, either by common sources for substances and the drugs they consume, common uh, lines of work, other criminal associates. And they're all disposed of. So to go back to a, a few previous episodes, the disposal pathway, as it's known, is the same in every case. Cause of death is the same in two, most likely in all eight. So if it's not a serial killer, uh, you 've got two or more people, and again, two or more people classifies as teen killers, uh, who are not necessarily working in tandem, but certainly are mimicking each other and, and know that this is an effective way to dispose of these bodies. The question is, what is the motive? We know what the motive is in the case of, of serial homicide. Serial crime is driven by paraphilias overwhelmingly, which I 've discussed before. But if these are different people doing this for different reasons, I mean the the question is is why. And then that turns your mind then to phenomena like the mass femicides in Juarez and the Maquiadora murders, which were basically a series of I mean, potentially thousands of women murdered in, in Mexico who mostly worked in maquiadoras, which are, are, are factories. And that was all connected to organized crime. So the question then is, if you're going to talk cover-up and you're going to talk multiple suspects dumping bodies for different reasons or for a reason other than uh, a disordered sexual purpose, you have to consider the fact that there's, there's some kind of gang and activity going on here.
1: The reports that come back, so, you know, they say that some of them are undetermined, but in the, in the majority of the cases, there's, a, there's excessive amount of drugs in their system. And some of the family members say that, you know, in knowing some of these victims, like one victim had a lot of alcohol, there's a huge um, level of, of alcohol in one of the victims' bodies. And, you know, the sister had said she didn't drink. know, would she smoke weed and do other, yes, but, but she didn't drink alcohol. And so they found that to be really something that was abnormal in, in knowing her. So the excessive amount of drugs in their system, um, and also some had, well, the ones that they could decipher had their throat slit, some behind the ear. And some say that, Whoever did this made it look like it was a serial killer's M.O. by trying to make it look consistent. However, they don't believe it was the work of a serial killer. Now, I, I thought about this. You know, when does a serial killer go out and kill eight people who all knew each other? You know, it seems a little bit odd. Usually they're very random killings. And, the, and usually the women are not connected together. You know, from what we've discussed in a podcast, you could correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like they... they They all knew each other and they all may have known something that someone doesn't want them to talk about.
0: Serial murders, there's different classifications of the offender victim relationship. So we have, uh, you know, family, uh, acquaintances and friends, strangers, and then what are known as targeted strangers. So the victim does not know who the offender is, but the offender has identified and targeted and in many cases stalked the victim. That tends to be the range of victims in terms of uh, most serial offenders, uh, as they begin or as they target a specific community or are active in a smaller area. What you'd call it, what you classify using the the psychogeographic model as a, as a hunter. So there's four psychogeographic typologies for for serial offenders, depending how they navigate their space. And uh, we're going to talk about this in greater detail in a in a, in a coming episode, um, actually next week. Um, but one of them is known as the Hunter, which I'll get more into next week. And this is an offender who operates within an area familiar to them, where they know the local hideaways, they know the geography, they know um, the police, and they exploit that and operate. I mean, they're not going to necessarily kill their next door neighbor, but they're not going to go too far beyond their, what's known as a comfort zone. So uh, when that's in a small town, it's natural that there are going to be two or three points of connection between the victims. In this case, you're right, the connections are even tighter. They're more intimate. It's as though there is a common denominator yet to be identified linking all of these eight victims and potentially more. And you know what this reminds me of? so I've mentioned the Macchiadora murders, the femicide, and Juarez. I mean, the murders of many women for reasons and that are unsolved for reasons that we may never know, but the linkages seem to be there to the cartel through their sort of behind the scenes work in in terms of controlling uh, various businesses and and, and workplaces. But it also reminds me of the West Mesa murders, the 11 Women whose remains were found in a sort of organized clandestine grave in West Mesa, New Mexico. And in that case, again, the original thought was like the Long Island serial killer, where, again, we see similar burial practices that this must be a, a serial killer of some kind. But now the thought is that, no, this was a very specific, designated hiding spot, burial ground for women who were involved uh, in And when I say involved, uh, essentially entrapped in various forms of forced labor, including human trafficking.
1: That's the first thing that came to mind for me was the Long Island serial killer, because I kept thinking about, you know, the fact that the when it was uncovered, you know, that politicians and, and higher ups were very involved in what was going on with these women who would keep continuing going to this home for drugs and sex and, You know, and this is why this guy's name keeps coming up. Also, Frankie Richard, this name just keeps coming up. But when you hear him kind of explicate what he his own involvement in this, I mean, he seems to be almost very truthful about what he's saying. But people believe he knows something. He's protecting his family by not saying anything, which in turn now is making him look guilty. So, you know, he keeps coming up over and over and people keep saying, you need to go talk to Frankie. We think he's involved. Richard appears, you know, to be somebody who would be giving drugs. It was like the the go-to trailer. Um, And he was a drug user, drug dealer. He was also with some of the victims before, right before they disappeared, but he also admitted to having sex with a couple of them. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, they're, they're using drugs. They're, they're, involved in a lot of activity they shouldn't be involved in. Um, And then at some point, you know, these, these witnesses keep coming forward and saying that they saw, you know, a woman with a sheet over her um, and her throat was cut. And, but I'm just wondering if a sheet is over them, how do they, they didn't even get inside. How did they see that the throat was cut? It almost seems to be a planned story where they're putting these witnesses up to it and the witnesses themselves are in trouble. So, you know, if you really wanted to go into some sort of, you know, theory or a conspiracy theory as to what's going on here, one could argue that these people are being coerced to say these things to get themselves out of trouble, but to point the investigation in a different direction. And, you know, when you watch the documentary and the angles that they caught on some of what these people have to say, you know, you know that some... Journalists can be very leading in their own beliefs, too. So you have to be careful what you're watching. But if you sit and listen, if you truly just sit and listen, you know, and if you're someone who can really think about how people explain things and how it comes down the pike, one of the witnesses actually came forward and accused Richard and I believe his niece of, of these murders and knowing what happened and later on recanted what she had to say about it. Because she said that the police forced her to do it and guilt came over her and she just couldn't go through with it. And the stories are similar in what they're explaining. So it sounds like someone is making them rehearse what they're saying and then regurgitating the material. Um, and then it keeps coming back to this one guy because he's the central guy. He's the guy you go to. He's the guy you go get drugs from. He's the guy you know you can party with. So it will be easy target for him to be the one, you know. So w- when you hear them explain it, you start to go in your own mind a little bit. If you can, if you can deduce a lot of it and pull out some of the things that just kind of don't make sense. And it was also stated that some of these girls were speaking to the police as informants.
0: So for our listeners, an informant is someone essentially secretly uh, in many cases on police payroll. So this is different from a tipster. So you call in anonymously or you call crime stoppers or even just the local precinct to report on a crime and don't want to give your name, but you want to give a tip. That's what's known as an anonymous tipster, an informant or informer. Informer is actually the correct term, but informant has become sort of the, uh, the preferred synonym. This is someone who is immersed in the criminal subculture and has been recruited by a handler. So someone who essentially receives the information from them on a regular basis and manages them. Their identity as an informant is typically known only to the handler and maybe the handler's boss. And uh, they receive payment for their information. And depending on the information, there is some you know decent money attached. Um, I mean, not huge reward sums of money, but but certainly they get a little sort of annuity every month or every year uh, over the months that you know sustains their lifestyle or what have you for essentially informing daily or weekly on the activities of their of their colleagues. That's different than from an agent who is which is can be used only in a handful of circumstances. And this is someone uh, either a deep cover. Uh, law enforcement officer or, again, a civilian who's been recruited for this purpose. This is someone, again, who would be wearing a wire, uh, who is told to do something, is, being, is taking direction from police in order to build a case. Uh, an informant just stumbles across information because they're immersed in crime and then essentially tells the police what they know. So it's a very precarious relationship in terms of, I mean, I can recall dealing with informers who, I mean, essentially were double agents and very treacherous, and, uh, and then others who put themselves in danger because they would love to advertise to others that they were informants. You know, I'm, I'm working for this guy, or, you know, you should see who I know. Well, when word like that, when word of those activities travels throughout the, the criminal underworld, you get a target on your back.
1: The Jeff Davis Eight, sometimes called the Jennings Eight, refers to a series of unsolved murders in Jefferson Davis Parish, Louisiana. Between 2005 and 2009, the bodies of eight women were found in swamps and canals surrounding Jennings, Louisiana. Most of the bodies were found in such a state of decomposition as to make the actual cause of death difficult to determine. Questions surrounding the investigation surfaced after an investigative reporter, Ethan Brown, started digging for answers. In December 2008, a task force consisting of 14 federal, state, and local law enforcement agencies was formed to solve the killings. From the outset, the task force was searching for a serial killer. However, Brown's recent investigative work exposing connections between victims, suspects, and the police cast doubt on the theory that the Jeff Davis 8 is the work of a serial killer. Family members of the victims suspect the police are actually responsible for the deaths
0: disclosing this to the wrong person they're not supposed to disclose this to anybody again this is a secret between their handler and them not even their families know in many cases if word of that got out was there a systematic then sort of purging of anyone who was known or suspected to be an informant
1: and now take it to the police. Cause this is something that you and I always kind of were careful of. We don't, we don't blame anyone and we don't go along with the conspiracy theories. We're just trying no. to kind of like analyze what's going on and pick it apart. So with that being said, I think what really happens is, you know, the facts are there. Okay. So here's the facts regarding the Jennings police department. And I think this is why this gives them the foundation of why people don't trust them. So let's start there. Cause these are the facts. So, um, you know, The Jennings Police Department and the Jefferson Davis Parish Sheriff's Office were notorious for corruption and misconduct. So in the 90s, multiple officers were involved and charged in major drug trafficking deals, obstruction of justice, illegal traffic stops, um, using public funds to make large purchases for themselves. So this, I think, I mean, has caused people to have doubt in them. They also say for a town, because you and I talk about clearance rate, you know, we went into that whole, that whole clearance rate thing in another podcast. I think that was also for the Millennium Strangler, but for a town, for a town of 10,000 or 11,000 roughly, this is an extremely large number of murders to have with the clearance rate of measured crime solved. So Michael, I know you know more about that, but it doesn't quite match up. So there's been a lot of doubt surrounding this police department and I think that's why they're they're stating that maybe the girls were trafficked among the officers who don't want to admit it or somewhere along the line. And that's why they don't want it to be to be heard of. And also another officer was, you know, again this is alleged, I don't know if this is true or not, but was said to have hid a lot of the evidence involved in this particular case.
0: Yeah, I mean, you can really go down a rabbit hole with the the conspiracies. Um, Again, without pointing fingers, I mean, I like to remind people what on the surface might seem like a conspiracy and, you know, things are interconnected and what have you. And, and, you know, this this so bucks the trend and is so inconsistent with how all other cases are worked that there must be something nefarious going on behind the scenes. In many cases, it's the much less exciting, much less glamorous reality of the fact that they're just incompetent. right? And that there's just no interest. There's no intellectual curiosity the way that we have for these cases. There's no passion. There's no no experience, quite frankly, in working complex cases where you're dealing with a potential multicide or like, whether it's a serial killer or whether these are a series of imitative murders for, criminal enterprise purposes. So again, four motives, four recognized motivational models for for murder. Uh, Personal cause, group cause, criminal enterprise or sexual. So overwhelmingly serial killers are sexual. Uh, If this is not a a serial killer, um, or at least one operating with a sexual paraphilic motive, is there a group cause or criminal enterprise cause? So uh, do these murders further the interests of a criminal enterprise? And that's really where the conspiracy or cover-up comes in, in terms of in a community this small, and the crimes are all still unsolved. How far-reaching is that criminal enterprise, and has it infiltrated local law enforcement?
1: It's just amazing, and I keep scrolling through and just staring at these girls' names who just need justice, you know, and the families who are just broken over this, just really broken and you just feel their pain of them crying that they just it it was seconds before i just sent my daughter to the store she wanted to go to the dollar store or something and she she never came back where did they go you know and this is we're talking about daylight. you know so one could assume that they got into a car with someone they knew because it's just they just disappeared you know, and they're found all over. Some are found in the, in the, in the fishermen, by the fishermen swamps and then others in the middle of a of dirt road. And it's just, there's so many things, you know, and it's, it's, I hate hearing of victims who don't have justice. And yet there's so, so many, you can't even cover everything, you know? And I just, I look at these girls and I don't want them to be forgotten. I want them to be remembered and hopefully they can find some sort of justice for the, for this case. I mean, if people know anything, they can come forward. We'll post stuff on uh, Facebook and our page so people can take a look at what the facts are surrounding the case. But I just, you know, I just hate seeing this. such young girls too. Very, very young girls.
0: Yeah, I mean, this this reminds me. And again, to go back to the theory that this these may be different offenders who are just sort of imitating each other. Not, I mean, explicit like wanting to. Have the crimes associated with it with somebody else, or that they even know each other. But this disposal pathway in Louisiana is not uh, a really novel concept. I mean, if you've seen the first season, I assume, of True Detective, I mean, uh, Russ Cole, Matthew McConaughey's character, who's a state police uh, detective, discusses how he thinks the serial killer thereafter. Has many, many more victims who were never identified or even found during Hurricane Katrina, and took advantage of essentially the, the flooding and the chaos uh, to dump bodies all over the place. I mean, that and that's a. I mean, that given the the topography and the terrain in that state, could be hidden forever. And that's why it's the Jennings Eight, and maybe the Jennings Eighty Eight. We don't know. And again, uh, you alluded to this earlier. Unfortunately, when we look at sort of adequacy standards of police departments across the U S there are a lot of deficiencies in a lot of these parishes, which are Louisiana counties in that state that just, there's just not a lot going on, uh, in terms of, like I said, um, keeping up with the times whereby an offender, a motivated offender could very easily outmaneuver them. And if this was done fictionally in in true detective until Russ Cole came along and, and saw sort of the the forest through the trees and and figured everything out. But unfortunately it's, it's, it goes on in real life as well. And to go back Don to clearance rates, this is sort of hot off the press, but not surprisingly. And I've talked about this the the sort of rise of crime in specific cities during the pandemic and the various lockdowns and then the effect that that had on, on, on people psychologically and not surprisingly drove up homicide rates in specific cities. But the national data has now come in at the murder accountability project and 2020, not surprisingly largest single year jump in recorded history, nationally speaking, the United States overall murders up 30% coast to coast and the clearance rate, or the solved rate, so 2016 had been the lowest solved rate in recorded history. 2020 actually marked a new low. So we have the single highest year jump in murder and the single biggest drop in clearances in 2020, which is an absolutely, I mean, it's the perfect storm. Wow. Yeah, lowest clearance rate since records record keeping began in 1929 fifty three percent is the national average that 's one in two killers getting away with it when you 're having more murders than ever so unfortunately um, i mean this is why we do what we do this uh, this This problem is only worsening and doing so at a record pace
1: so sad you know they're, they're even you know the schools have had like you know we had a fight in school the other day like the, the people are just breaking down. You know, when you think about it on a smaller scale in a community of a school, which is so much smaller and it's it's been horrific. It really has. The students don't know how to integrate again. Socializing has become very difficult because they're sitting behind these shields and masks on. And yep. it's just it's been a detriment, actually, you know, and a, and a very impersonal type of situation that that's fostering. A lot of what's happening you know so you can only picture that on a larger scale with so many more people and now it just becomes such a such a harsh reality thanks for joining us today guys see you next time on suspect zero
0: on the next episode of suspect zero the case of russell maurice johnson
1: aka the balcony strangler